Hello, this is Gary Miller, president of the University of Akron. We're honored to have you listen to our podcast series, Diverse Engineering, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of our gold sponsors, GPD Group and Continental Contatech. The University of Akron and our community partners are committed to the success of students from around the world and in our own backyard. We're especially proud of the contributions and successes that have resulted from the hard work, determination, and dedication of our students of color. Please enjoy our podcast. Welcome to Diverse Engineering, a podcast celebrating the stories, voices, contributions, and innovations of minorities to their fields of engineering. What does CAD, computer automated design, microphones, video games, color TV, wireless phones, artificial hearts, stents, and dishwashers all have in common? All were inventions or significantly improved inventions by historically excluded engineers. My name is Ebony Bond, and I am a mechanical engineering graduate from the notable University of Akron, and I will be your host for this podcast. This season honors minority professors and researchers in engineering here at the university. You can expect to hear their stories about navigating their education and careers and hear about their research and the real world impact that they are making through their research. For more information about our podcast and to stream past episodes, visit us at uakron.edu forward slash diverse engineering. This episode titled Second Choices, Best Choices features Dr. B. Audrey Wynn. Here's what you should know about Dr. Wynn. Dr. Wynn is a lifelong Buckeye and completed her bachelor's, master's, and PhD in biomedical engineering at The Ohio State University. Dr. Wynn was a visiting assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the Rose-Holman Institute of Technology before joining the Department of Biomedical Engineering here at the University of Akron as a visiting assistant professor. In May of 2021, Dr. Wynn transitioned to the role of assistant professor of practice where her research and educational interests include orthopedic biomechanics, ocular biomechanics, and student metacognition. We look forward to sharing your story and to hear about your impact as a researcher thus far and the impact that you hope to make. And thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to have this conversation with us today. Definitely appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. For sure. So I'd like to start off with, you know, your background. So if you could say a little bit about where you're from and what was the like culture of education um, growing up for you? Oh, man. Uh, how long do we have? So... <laughs> It, it, it depends on how you start. So, like, uh, I had a very interesting childhood. So, I actually grew up in uh, Beijing because my dad was working with Procter & Gamble at the time. That's where we were living. So, I went to a smaller private school, not a ton of kids around. Um, but it was really great as far as, like, education. I was really inspired to always be learning. Uh, I thought, you know, being in school was the best part of my day, which made me a very weird little kid. Um, so... <laughs> There was that. And then uh, in the year 2000, my family moved to Mason, Ohio. It's a not that small of a city. It was at the time, but it's a city about 20 miles north of Cincinnati. OK. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, as far as like education, it's been one of the most important things that uh, my parents really emphasized to us growing up. So my parents are both from Vietnam. Uh, and to make a long story super short, they had a lot of uh, challenges because of the uh, Vietnam War. So 
uh, education was always something that they, you know, really strongly valued in their generation. They wanted to pass that on to all of us in our generation as well. So mm-hmm. it's always been a big, big part of our lives. That makes sense. So you said like they, they had challenges. I, I don't know what they are, but did you know any engineers growing up or how did you, you know, stumble on engineering as a path for you? Yeah. So my dad was an engineer. Okay. Uh, he was an industrial systems engineer, if I recall correctly. <laughs> um, so he does what I fondly call business engineering, but he does way more than that. Um, and uh, so a lot of my dad's dad and his brothers, they were all engineers. Okay. So I saw that example growing up, but I also had a lot of just like, you know, on both sides of my family, mom and dad, I had a lot of high achieving uh, folks in my life. So I had people who were doctors or people who decided to pursue law or people who decided to go to one of them was a a veterinarian surgeon and a couple of like really up there accountants as well. So, you know, it was always about like, you know, finding your hustle and then continuing to to like be the best at what you can. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting that you called it business engineering. I never heard that, but that will stick with me forever because it is true. It's so true, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all about like logistics and management and supply chains and way more math than I would expect. But yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Um, so, you know, you grow up with these influences of, of engineering and then you actually like enrolled in school in engineering. Were there any experiences in like your undergrad that like really piqued your interest or like boosted your confidence in engineering? Ooh, great question. <laughs> so like I originally went into biomedical engineering because I wanted a like gold star when I applied to medical school. So that was the goal the whole time. I was always gunning for pre-med and it ended up being that, like, I was just med school, med school, med school. Like, I did all the med, pre-med classes. I applied to medical school. I, like, oh. start, like did all the applications, right? I, like, I even taught a pre-med – or not pre-med. I even taught a prep course for the medical school exam. Like, I was doing the mostest. But <laughs> then – the like October or November of my senior year, I literally like woke up in a blind panic and I like had night sweats and chills and I freaked out and I was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I like had a had a little bit of a breakdown, um, but I had great friends who mm-hmm. just sat me down there like, just do something else. <laughs> this is the time to figure out what you actually want to do. And a lot of my friends at the time were considering graduate school, not necessarily for engineering, but graduate school for political science, graduate school for linguistics. And they're like, just consider grad school, right? You like learning. You like being in school uh, and figure out what else you like to do. And I was like, well, I liked teaching because I had done some undergraduate teaching as well. And I was like, at the end of the day, I really liked my engineering classes way more than I ever liked my pre-med classes. Mm. So it just finally clicked even though it should have been obvious but mm-hmm. basically had a qu- had a quarter life crisis <laughs> um and then it just became you know figuring things out i had great friends they sat me down they're like which are the three schools that you can apply to that's not too late to apply to graduate schools uh you have to take the gre when can you take the gre here are all of my notes like they were so great i owe a lot to to having such a good support group to get me through that crisis yeah uh 
but yeah, no, it was it was a slow realization. It was definitely a slow burn before I was like, I actually want to do engineering. Mm-hmm. I really want to do engineering. Mm-hmm. Did it surprise you when you woke up and you said you were in this? Did that moment surprise you or? Oh, I was terrified. Yeah. I had wanted. I was one of those kids. Like I was going to be a doctor since I was like six. Mm-hmm. So it was a real like crisis yeah. of my personality and like my identity, identity at that point. But yeah, it was just like, what do I actually want to do? What do I actually want to be? And I talked to, again, I talked to my friends. I talked to a couple of the uh, professors that I had that I like really, you know, I respected their opinion. Like Mm -hmm. I felt like they would level with me and be like, yes, you can do this. Or like, hey, maybe not. Mm -hmm. And they were so like chill about it. They were so excited also mm-hmm. when I told them, I was like, you know, I was talking about going to med school, but now I think that that's not the right idea. And I'm thinking about grad school and me, they're like, oh, I'm so excited. I was hoping you'd figure that out on your own sooner or later. <laughs> and then what did that mean? Did they, I, I they guess saw they it? saw something yeah. that I didn't, um, yeah. but they were really nice to let me come to that decision on my own. Um, and I really am grateful for that. They ended up being like my mentors uh, all throughout my graduate career. So it was really cool. So you said that you like teaching, but in the moment you were talking to your friends and they're like, it's not too late. You can go to grad school. Did the idea of being a professor like resonate with you then? Or did it take a while? Like after you took the GRE and like, when did you make the decision? Like I'm going to go and pursue academia. So it was, yeah, it was like once I figured out the grad school plan, it's like, well, what do you want to do with grad school? And at that point I hadn't really done a lot of research Because, again, I was like all about the pre-med things. I was doing a lot of volunteering, a lot of shadowing, a lot of those kinds of things. I know some a lot of people do undergraduate research for pre-med, but I wasn't one of those. Right. Um, So I didn't really know what the research part of it looked like yet. Um, But what I did know is I liked teaching. Mm -hmm. I loved teaching engineering and helping people to figure out what their path in engineering was going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I kind of knew I was like, you know, I think the professor route really is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives me a chance to stay in school forever <laughs> and to continue to learn new things and learn from new people and to to see the kinds of awesome humans they become. So it, are you attracted to like the development side of it for teaching or like what does what does teaching really mean to you or mean for you? For me, it's always it's that continuous improvement thing. So, you know, every year I could get a brand new group of freshmen or sophomores. Right. And I just get an opportunity to help them figure out what biomedical engineering means to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I feel like when I was first starting out, biomedical engineering was really new. Uh, When I was enrolling and said I wanted to do biomedical engineering as my major, we were one of the first classes, like actual classes of biomedical engineers at Ohio State. I think ours was the first accredited year because oh. um, we we signed up knowing that we weren't accredited yet. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until our senior year that we got that accreditation. I just remember that that feeling of everyone looking around and making eye contact. We're like, we're real engineers now <laughs> or we will be when we graduate. And that felt really exciting. So it was very new. And I feel like I still have to defend it when people are like, what's biomedical engineering? Like prosthetics? I was like, yes. And, and- basically anything that ever comes in contact with your body. So like Mm-hmm. contacts that sit on your eye that have to stay clear that don't collect a lot of gross stuff and get infections in your eye that's biomedical engineering uh pacemakers to keep your heart beating uh that's biomedical engineering 
total hip implants, total knees. That's biomedical engineering. New ways to deliver cancer medicine so that it doesn't make you feel super, super sick the way that it has in the past. That's biomedical engineering. It's everything. The bed right? you lay in in the hospital. Absolutely. The someone is MRI machine. Someone has to figure out how to make that all work, how to make it better, how to. It's the the intersection of real world problem solving, healthcare, and medicine, mm. and the human body. And there's just there's so much there. And of course, like yes, definition. prosthetics. Of yeah. course, <laughs> it's the easy one that people think of. Right. Um, and it's not to say that it's not important. Right. But there's so much. I like your your explanation of engineering, healthcare, medicine, and the human body. I like that. I'm going to I'm going to use that. So I've got two terms today in engineering that, yeah. I, that I got from you. Um, so what classes do you teach? And like, is one your favorite mm. and why? Ooh, I don't like saying I have a favorite because okay, like I children. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, they I, it's, it's really like choosing between children. I definitely don't want to say that I have a favorite, uh, but I do think that there are ones that are more impactful. So I teach a lot of different classes right now. Uh, one of the benefits of being in a smaller department means that I get to kind of teach everyone at some point. So um, by now I've taught a handful of classes, but the ones that I'm probably going to keep teaching over and over will be uh, tools for biomedical engineering, um, mechanics of biological tissues, experimental techniques in biomechanics, although I think that class is getting modified with our new curriculum. Um, and then hopefully I get to keep biomedical computing because that's been really fun mm -hmm. this semester. But the one that I come back, I love all of my classes, like mechanics of biological systems is really like my bread and butter. So it's yeah. like the like looking at the human body as a mechanical system. So thinking about like statics, everyone hates statics. But as soon as you start thinking about bones and muscles and how they work together to support a load, it makes more sense to me than like, here's this steel beam with this cable that's mm -hmm. attached to some weight. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I love that class. Cause that's really like my bread and butter. But the one that I find the most impactful that I feel like I put a lot of myself into would be tools. I yeah. love tools because I'm like, that's the first real chance for me to like get in there and be like, no, I see you as limitless potential as first years or second years. I really want to make sure that you get those critical skills of problem solving and logical thinking and uh, to get you to think like an engineer before you ever get into like your quote unquote more engineering kinds of classes. Mm -hmm. What does it what does it mean to think like an engineer? So that's a that's also a good question. <laughs> so for me, it's it's twofold. The first is when you're given a problem to take that step back and to develop a solution as you go. So to see a problem, to figure out, okay, what are my inputs? What is my output? What is the pathway to get there? What information do I have? What are my constraints? What are my tools? And then just uh, the other side of it that we don't think about is how do you introduce that creativity and that flexibility when it comes mm -hmm. to design? Because so much of what we do in school is try to find the right answer. Yeah, and then so much of what you will do as an engineer in the real world is to develop a solution to questions that don't have one answer. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting, too, because you have to, like, input failure in there and, like, being open to failure in there, which Absolutely. is completely different from, like, the mindset of being a student. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's something that it took me way too long to learn that 
failure is not a stopping point. Mm -hmm. Failure is always an opportunity to learn something, Mm -hmm. right? You fail at it. You have to say, well, why did it fail? Mm -hmm. Did I do it? Did something else do it? And sometimes people say it was something else. Right. And it's <laughs> and it's very easy to want to do that. But sometimes it's like you can it's a chance to reflect and to be like, okay, well, this didn't work out. So what can we do better next time? Mm-hmm. Like right. a little experiment in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, I was reading there in your bio, you know, that you like teaching SolidWorks, uh, CAD modeling, MATLAB programming, and then also the hands-on labs. Is teaching those like kind of programs like intentional for you? Because I've considered that more like um, some of the hard skills of engineering versus like the theoretical side of it. So is that like has been has it been intentional or is it just ended up that way for you? No, I I genuinely love it. So back in um, back when I was an undergraduate teaching assistant and then eventually a graduate teaching assistant at Ohio State, uh, they do things a little bit differently. So they're one of those schools that has a first year engineering program. So instead of you already like self-selecting into mechanical engineering tools or biomedical engineering tools or electrical engineering tools, everyone is together Mm. in the first year taking a common core of classes. So it's MATLAB programming, SolidWorks, solid modeling, and a little bit of design as well. So everyone gets those same common skills. So I... As a first year, I was working with a team like my group was one mechanical engineer, an aerospace engineer and an electrical engineer. And we just worked together uh, the entire semester. And that was very different, but very rewarding. So I have been teaching MATLAB and SOLIDWORKS for forever now. And it just happens to be that that's why I like teaching them. Wow. That's actually kind of interesting. And that's, you know, no shade to UA, but I (laughs) would have liked to have had opportunity to gain that like skill set there are there are so many advantages to that but there's also a lot of challenges right Mm -hmm. because uh there is a lot of strength in getting your first years right away Mm -hmm. and to be like this is what it means to be a biomedical engineer this is what it means to be a mechanical engineer these are the professors that you're going to work with Right. Because it, it can feel like this really big disconnect when it's like, oh, everyone had these same kinds of instructors the first year. And then it's a completely separate building, a completely separate group of people. You mm-hmm. lose a lot of like the friends that you made because you were all mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. and you now have to make like I didn't see a lot of other biomedical engineers uh, in my first year sequence. I had to make all new friends my sophomore year. It was there are pros and cons to it right that that social side mm-hmm. yeah so you listed as an interest metacognition mm-hmm. what is that and why is it an interest so to you? metacognition um to put it simply is learning how to learn mm-hmm. it is uh that step of like again why i see failure as an opportunity which is to take a step back mm-hmm. to realize what did i do that led to this result And how am I going to learn from it Mm -hmm. the next time, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when I'm teaching some sort of a concept, I really want to, you know, I'll put a difficult kind of question or a slightly more challenging question. And I'm going to leave my students to discuss it for three to five minutes in like pairs or in small groups. And then we're going to bring it back. And I'm asking them, like, share with me, right? I'm not going to tell you what the right answer is. I just want to hear how you think, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And tell me why you think that way. Mm -hmm. So if you said, oh, the answer is A, I'm like, well, how? How did you get there? Why did you get there, right? 
And when I eventually tell them the right answer, I'm like, okay, so this is the right answer because, but let me go through. And as you were sharing your experience with me, let me be like, this is why you got there. I totally understand it. Now let's do the slight adjustment to put you back on the right path. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So metacognition for me has always been learning how to learn, how to take that step back, do that reflection and be like, I really know this aspect and I'm definitely weak in this aspect. So I need to devote more time or more energy here to bring the two parts together so that I can be successful. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you like researched more about or do you feel like that has been like a natural skill for you? Yeah. So I, I feel like the idea of learning how to learn or metacognition has always been there, but it wasn't until I was taking like specific courses for um, educational pedagogy, meaning like how to teach, how to, to learn about teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I had a word to fit that idea. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I had noticed when I was working with, you know, primarily first year students. I taught a lot of first year students where they would just make the same mistakes over and over. And it's really frustrating on the teaching side when you're like, why are you making the same mistakes over and over? And I'm like, it's because you don't realize that your way of thinking is leading you to these repeated patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to build in some way for you to like self-check in and be like, oh, I'm doing that thing again. Let me take a step back. Let me revise and get to it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because there'll be things like, you know, how do you know you have the right answer on a math question? If you like type in all your stuff on in a calculator and it gives you some number, how do you know that that number actually makes sense in the real world? Because mm-hmm. uh, you could have like accidentally put in a three where it should have been a six or you a could have accidentally sign. a negative sign got dropped. <laughs> and, you know, how do you put into context? How do you recognize this answer doesn't quite make sense? Mm-hmm. Let me go back and check this. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the metacognition part where I'm like, we want to get you to think like an engineer where you're not just like gunning for the right answer. Because that's how you've been trained your whole life. It's right. once you get an answer, how do you know it's right? Right. What are those visual cues or how do you have confidence in yourself that the work that you put in is correct right that it makes sense Mm -hmm. we will get back to dr audrey Wynn's story in a moment but first i want to thank you for listening to this diverse engineering podcast series about diverse engineering faculty at the university of akron my name is amara gambrell and i am able to attend the university of akron because of the diversity and engineering scholarships that i have received These scholarships, which are offered through the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, make a huge impact in my academic success by reducing my financial need. If you would like to make a difference in the diverse engineering graduate student's academic career, please text WIE to 71777 or give online at www.uacron.edu forward slash giving forward slash WIE. So... I'm particularly curious about this like next answer from you. Um, just in reading your bio, um, you seem to have like a real interest in teaching. Um, so I was listening to a podcast about game design and there were the, the man was saying like the most important part of game design is the point system because that tells you what to care about. That tells you what you should value. They say, okay, we see the value of a GPA because it makes it easy. It's like a universal, I don't know, like indicator for everybody. But if you had to have your own university, the doctor win, 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 no matter what university, what would be that indicator of success or that point system you think to say, like, maybe this would be a good student or so qualitative or quantitative? Yeah, I 
At the end of the day, they're all just numbers Mm -hmm. and they're all numbers that tell you only one specific thing about that person. Mm -hmm. So standardized test scores, SATs and ACTs, right? Mm -hmm. What do those numbers mean? If you do great on them, if you get a good score, all it means is that you're really good at taking standardized tests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean anything about are you capable of becoming a great engineer. Right. We have no metric for that. Right. An example I think about all the time is I had an advisor in grad school because I just collected advisors. It was a, <laughs> it was a real problem. Um, <laughs> but I had a lot of advisors in grad school. But one advisor, you know, he was really struggling. And uh, it was a challenge because he needed to bring in a new graduate student. And he, you know, found someone who was top of their class at, I won't say which university, but top of their class in biomedical engineering, 4.0 GPA on paper, brilliant kid, right? Mm-hmm. The person shows up, it's kind of just like weird for a little bit. And like after a few years, it, not even a few years, after a few weeks or months, he realized like, oh, this, this guy has no idea what he's doing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the big thing about that is because on paper, even though he looks perfect, all that a 4.0 tells me is that you've never fa- you've never failed at anything, mm-hmm. right? And if you've never failed at anything, that means you don't know what to do when you don't know the right answer. Mm. So yeah. I think, you know, if I were still to have GPAs, I would be, if I was looking for someone to be a great researcher, I'm looking for a 3.0, a 3.2, mm. someone that stuck with it, that got some C's and D's, also got some A's, right? Where I'm like, clearly you're smart and clearly you work hard and clearly you've experienced some setbacks and you didn't let that define you or stop you. Mm. So so maybe like the the measurement for you or the um, point system for you would be something about resiliency. Or- absolutely. Yeah. It's all about it's all like long, long, long story short. Uh, certainly nothing in my life has ever worked out the way that I originally planned. Mm-hmm. Med school? Nope. Ended up going to grad school. I originally wanted to go in uh, and study bones and do orthopedic biomechanics and biomaterials. That didn't pan out. I ended up switching over to ocular and doing uh, research on eyeballs. And uh, certainly just it was this constant flow. I mean, even going to the Ohio State <laughs> University. I'm contractually they obligated. Have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years, 10 years. Uh, even though I was there for so long and I loved it, and it was the one of the most defining experiences of my life. It was not my first choice mm-hmm. for college. Mm-hmm. Not even close, not even like top three, right? Mm-hmm. I had other places that I was like, I really want to go, but circumstances changed. Uh, the 2008 Great Recession hit mm-hmm. and uh, it was the first time in my life that my parents really like, sat me down. They're like, you know, we got to we got to think about this. You know, we wanted you to go to that school that you picked out from forever ago. And uh, it's just, you know, we, we can make it work. But these are things that you want to think about. Mm-hmm. So then had the conversation, talked about it. And I was like, Ohio State, let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it was the best decision I've ever made. So your second bet, your second choice probably is your best choice most mm-hmm. often in life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Not that people who see a goal work to get that goal, achieve that goal. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But for the vast majority of us, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't get what you want the first time, you can keep going or realize that there's a second option. You could change mm-hmm. and you could grow. And uh, yeah, you'll be surprised what you'll be at the other end of it. Yeah, you can change your mind at any time. That's at like, any time. Yeah, like, Senior year, <laughs> yeah, yeah. October. 
deciding to, you know, calling my parents being like, I know you said you'd pick me up after finals. I need three days. And they're like, why? And I was like, because I'm applying to grad school and I need to take the GRE. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was a very intense time. You know, I wanted to, you know, I guess have an assignment about something you said. So there's a book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. And he talks about how these students, like your, your pal, your probably fare better in life going to a regular university versus an Ivy League. And what the data showed is that students who go to Ivy Leagues are so used to being the top of their class. And then you come with this super competitive field where everybody's a top and maybe where you used to be in the top, now you're middle. And that the students can't emotionally handle that. Absolutely. And so they normally have these breakdowns and stuff that they can't bounce back from because they don't have any experience with it. And so the the conclusion was like, you're better off just going to a regular public university because those students usually end up doing better in life. But I want to transition to your research. If you could explain your your research and your expertise to a seven-year-old, what would you say you do? Ooh, to a Mm seven-year-old. All right. My niece just turned eight. So Uh, let me think. So uh, for my first research field, which was called orthopedic biomechanics, biomaterials. What that meant was that I was looking at bones and I wanted to see how they behave, Mm -hmm. right? My specific project was looking at a type of surgery um, that you do on the uh, inner ear, right? Mm -hmm. And we were trying to help build a virtual reality simulation that would make some ear, nose and throat surgeons in training get better at their job because you've got to, to drill through a lot of bone and it's a very delicate situation because there's a lot of um, complex like nerves and vessels there that you don't want to mess up mm-hmm. when you have to get to uh, the deeper parts of your, of your head. Um, so that was a project that I worked on for about two years. Mm -hmm. But the reason I switched over is because of something called funding, which meant that (laughs) uh, there's all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but there was eventually not money to support this project, which meant that I had to make a choice about what I wanted to do. And if there's no money to support the project, it just becomes very, 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 very hard to continue on it. So I switched over to a different lab and that lab studied ocular biomechanics and you know ocular just means with relation to the eyes Mm -hmm. so i looked at eyes and see how they behave with the idea that if we know more about how they behave we can figure out how they work when they're healthy and that'll help us to really understand how they work when they're not healthy Mm -hmm. so what uh, specific problems do you seek to solve like through your research Oh, man, I haven't talked about my research in forever. Uh, So (laughs) what I was doing um, back in grad school and uh, if I hadn't gone and stayed into teaching, I might have continued to pursue this. But what we were looking at was I know everyone hates the air puff machine at the (laughs) eye doctors, but that was one of the critical devices I was working at. We had a fancy version of an eye puff machine that was also hooked up with a camera. A high-speed camera that would take images of the way the front of your eye would move because of this air puff, right? Mm -hmm. And we could use that information to get information about the properties of your eye. So like the stiffness of the, uh, the clear part, the cornea, as well as 
the sclera or the white part of your eye. And why that was important is because there's been a lot of studies and a lot of information that suggest that the the stiffness of your eyes really are an indicator in um, how glaucoma might progress mm-hmm. or develop in your eyes, right? And glaucoma is a serious problem. It's one of the leading causes of permanent blindness, mm-hmm. um, especially in older people. And uh, we don't have a lot of information yet on how it develops. We have theories. We have guesses. We have hypotheses that we're constantly looking at. Um, but what we do know is that it's associated most of the time, not all of the time, with really high pressure on the inside of your eye. Mm. And we know that the stiffness of your tissues may have something to do with it as well. But it's a really complex idea. We're still trying to figure that out. But we were just looking at one small part of uh, of glaucoma. Mm. The stiffness, I'm hearing more engineering terms also. Mm. Yep. You know, the, the, <laughs> the integration of that there. Um, so do you still do you currently do research here at the university? No, no, okay. no, I'm not. Uh, so uh, as a as a professor of practice or a professor of instruction, we are uh, fully on the teaching side of things. That's not to say that I don't know a lot of teaching track instructors or professors that still pursue research on the side. It is very much possible. But for me, my job right now, I am 100% in the classroom mm-hmm. with the students. Teacher, do you see yourself like going into research in the future? Or are you like, no. I like teaching. I'm going to try to stick here. I really do love teaching. Yeah. It is it is uh, something that I, I feel like I work way too much on. Um, <laughs> you know, I, no, that's a good thing. That means you care. Yeah, I, I it's one of those things where uh, what what did my one advisor say? He was always like, I'm not a morning person. Yeah. I never want to get up in the morning before yeah. like 10 or 11 a.m. But I will because I like my job. Mm-hmm. Right? And I feel that way about teaching where I'm like, you know, yeah, it's like eight in the morning. It's it's early. We got to do these labs together. But if I can make it just a little bit more fun, you know, the students like get that light bulb like, oh, that's why we learned about (laughs) stress and strain. I'm like, yes, that is why you learned about (laughs) stress and strain. Then it becomes worth it. Yeah. Can you see yourself doing anything if you left academia? If I left academia i've thought about this before and it'd be it would be really challenging i think that i it's taken me a long time to admit that i i'm really one of those people that really loves being in a setting like this Mm. uh you know working with students having the opportunity to constantly be learning something new Mm -hmm. to be able to meet only experts in your field and that's something that i forget about sometimes when i'm like these are my peers now but Mm. at the end of the day each of my peers each of your professors is an expert in something right which is an insane thing to think about that you can group this many experts into one building and they all teach and they all do research um and that's really cool that is an interesting point because i think as a student i never these are just my teachers like and i need to go to them if i need help or maybe if i need to cry (laughs) um but like never looking at them and and honestly for me not even to this interviewing people for this season realizing like whoa these people are super accomplished um in their fields and some of them like the best in their field in the country so yeah that is a i don't know i feel like all professors have to say that at the beginning of like every like first class when they hand out the syllabus like oh but it feels it feels so weird you don't want to like 
actually brag about that. I mean, maybe you do. You should. Maybe you should. I'm pretty sure it's, we'll probably listen. <laughs> so, um, so I heard you say the word, you know, challenge. Um, and I'm kind of curious if you feel like you've had, you know, a specific set of challenges as an Asian American woman in academia or even in research when you were in research or I, even you could probably say more generally as a professional. That's a that's a really good question. So I will say that I I want to recognize that I had a lot of privilege growing up and going through school because, you know, I, I was naturally a little bit more on that like bookish, mm-hmm. like academically like talented. I was not good at working, <laughs> working for my grades, which was why college was actually really hard for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to study because school had always felt kind of easy. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I never really had to learn how to learn, which is why the metacognition is so big to me. Cause I'm like, if I can figure it out, everyone can. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I always like relied a little bit too much on that. So I struggled a bit, but especially in engineering, I was very lucky in that a lot of my professors were also younger mm-hmm. faculty. It wasn't always older faculty. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of women in those roles Mm -hmm. so it was not something that i could see myself there and then you know as far as being asian in engineering we're not by any means an underrepresented minority right um so i've always felt that i had you know some foothold in some identity group Mm -hmm. that made it feel like i had a place to belong Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and i i recognize that i was a very lucky to have that and especially in biomedical engineering which is here in akron i think it's 50 50 Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. for women in classes and that is exceptional um because i certainly know that that is not the norm it's about 20 23 percent for uh women in engineering across the country across the board and that means that if biomedical is at 50 electrical and computer science are like Five. Right. And that's not where we want to be. Right. Um, so I wanted to just transition, I guess, more broadly to questions about you. Um, you mentioned um, someone saying, you know, I don't like getting up at 10 or 11, but I will because I get to do what I like to do. So what has your journey to like work life balance be like? Or is that something that you even believe in? And if so, like, how did you like get there? OK, I'm going to be very honest and say I don't have a work-life balance. Uh I I work when I work. But what I have learned to do, and this was part of turning 30 for me, where I was like, I need and I will start saying no to things. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm going to work way too many hours, I'm going to work way too many hours on things that I care about Mm -hmm. versus because I'm a people pleaser uh, Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that, Mm -hmm. but I have that people pleasing personality and I hate saying no to things. And I just don't have, there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah, I definitely get that saying that was very empowering though. when when you like get around to it, but yeah, like I've even heard some people say like they don't believe in work life balance. They just try to balance the day um, Mm -hmm. or like take the each day as it comes. And I was like, that seems like way more, I guess, relatable to, to me. I don't. So something that I've started doing that I have found to be really helpful doesn't exactly make my, my work life balance better, but you know, uh, you ever have those days where you feel like you've been doing so much, but you have no idea what you did. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. I've started writing everything down. 
So I wrote down, I had these meetings, I answered all of these emails, I talked to these students, I, you know, set up this thing, I made these PowerPoints. Like, I start writing down how I'm spending my day, and that helps me to, like, get that look back and be like, no, I did stuff today. I 100% did accomplish multiple achievable, useful things today. Right, right. And I wonder also if that's like a, a thing for like women, like if that would be especially helpful for us because I know like sometimes we feel like we didn't accomplish this like great thing and then or like what what do I have to show for this last week or month or year or whatever and it's like actually you did do things mm-hmm. like celebrate those things. So I like that. I think it's helpful for everybody to you know, to remember that you, you have to look for the good things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to get get sucked into the negative, but there are good things that happen, right? right? So even if the best part of your day is that, you know, they gave you the larger size of your drink at Starbucks on accident, (laughs) I'm like, that's great. Yeah. Made my, my whole day or like when I'm commuting or you get two drinks or when I'm commuting (laughs) home and it's all green lights, right? Like that, that helps me to realize I'm like, good things happened. Right. And things like answering emails, like being on top of your emails, it is hard, but when I get to the end of the day and I'm like, my inbox is empty. I'm like, perfect. I like the perfect day. I like that. So it's it's the end of the day. You have zero emails in your inbox. Like, what do you enjoy doing after work? Oh, man, I still work after work. Um, <laughs> I still work after work. But uh, right now we're in a very unique time. So my partner and I, we are planning our wedding. So there's a lot of like sitting down. Uh, we end up, I end up cooking dinner usually and we'll eat dinner together. And then there'll be some lull where like, we just like watch YouTube videos or something on Netflix or whatever. And then we're like, all right, we gotta, we gotta get these invitations done. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, oh, we gotta call the hotels and make sure that that's all ready. So it's, it's nice and fun and stressful for both him and I, (laughs) but yeah. yeah, yeah, we're in a good space. So, so you mentioned Netflix. Are there any podcasts or books that you listen to or that you wish you were listening to or, Ooh, or reading? Man, I should give like an academic answer and be like, I listen to all of these fancy pants things. But mm-hmm. that's that's more um, that's more my my fiance. He's the one who listens to all the educational stuff. Like he's got all the NPR ones, like Planet Money and Hidden Brain and all those. I'm like, nah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I use podcasts as a way to like escape right so i love the storytelling ones i like the weird ones Mm -hmm. um man one that's like real weird like if you're into like horror augmented reality really interesting kinds of like storytelling that kind of thing like kind of sci-fi ones Mm -hmm. one that i really have been getting into is the rabbits podcast it's it's bonkers and it's weird but it's really (laughs) i find it very cool um it's it's at this intersection like sci-fi and horror um and augmented reality which i think is super neat but books that i think everyone should read so i've i i never felt like i had to read this but then eventually i like sat down and read the whole thing i really liked whistling vivaldi it's a great book It is a book that I have come across time and time again because it is an excellent book to say, here's why diversity matters everywhere. Mm. And it's not just a like plea to diversity. It's a we have done studies. We have shown X. We have done controls. We have seen that diverse groups of people, it doesn't matter if it's in business or in STEM or in healthcare or in 
um, you know, podcasting, mm-hmm. right? Diverse groups everywhere succeed together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great book. And it's also a really short book, but it's super... Oh, I like short books. It's a super short book. <laughs> it's like like this big. And it's it's something that just keeps popping up. And I'm like, everyone should read this. I don't mm-hmm. like... Everyone uses it as like the excerpt. They pick like that one chapter. And I'm like, that's great. But there's like the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. I think everyone should read Whistling Vivaldi. I'll check that out. So... What would you like your impact or reputation to be when all is said and done? It's a great question. At the end of the day, I just want to be the person that saw the potential in me that I couldn't see in myself. So my grad school advisor, one of them, but the first one, the one who was just like, yeah, I'm so glad you decided against pre-med and that you're going to go to grad school because it's going to be great. And the one who took me on even though I had never done any research before and I had a, you know, an okay GPA. It was like a three, it was a three something, but it was a low three something. Mm-hmm. Um, and who saw the potential in me to succeed. And I was like, I, I did not believe that I was going to get through grad school multiple times. There were many, many mental breakdowns <laughs> or many crises of faith. And I was like, just don't think I can do it. And he was always there to be like, no, it's, it's just another challenge. It's just uh-huh. another road bump. You know, you're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be that person for my students because I, I truly believe that given enough time um, and enough resources, anyone can succeed. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe that means that you got to take a step back and figure out, you know, the rest of your life outside of school for a bit and then come back. That's OK. Maybe that means you do the fifth year or the sixth year. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. Maybe that means you take statics for the third time also okay right mm-hmm. everyone's journey is different but mm-hmm. again it's all about that resilience right I love that and i want to be that person that sees the resilience in people i love that um is there anything you felt like um i didn't ask that you like to share no i mean yeah i mean like i i tell the story to the the sophomore seminar uh class when i get asked to do the lecture but i tell them this all the time that you know life is going to throw you a lot of challenges right mm-hmm. and if at first you don't succeed Okay, you should try again Mm -hmm. and realize that sometimes your second choice in life is your best choice in life. Mm -hmm. We got to be open to to that change because we just don't know who we are yet this early in our lives. Yeah. 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 Um, And then, you know, my final question, because that seems to be also like the the advice that you would share. So my my final question is, do you have a favorite biomedical engineering joke or story? Ooh, a favorite engineering joke or story? Jokes? I don't know about, I'm not very good at jokes. <laughs> I'm really not. My favorite type of jokes are like old school dad jokes. Yeah. And I, I, I joke with my friends that all I've ever wanted to be was a dad um, <laughs> because they get the best jokes. But uh, no, I mean, as far as biomedical engineering stories, maybe like really lame, but the, uh-huh. my favorite story is uh, my, my now fiance. We met in a computer lab. We were just uh, hanging out, doing homework. He was the year below me. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, that's how we met. So he's he's still my favorite story. Ours is my favorite story Aww. from biomedical engineering. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for you know your time today and for being very human in this interview and for, for your love of teaching and, and people. I definitely appreciate and admire that. So thank you so much for your time today. No, and thank you for having me. I really, you know, I listened to a few episodes of this and I think that, you know, what you're doing is absolutely spectacular. I love that it's for a good cause to to raise funds to support students. So mm-hmm. we're all about supporting students here. Mm-hmm. That's the College of Engineering and Polymer Science. So absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Since the taping of the podcast, Dr. Wynn did go on and marry the love of her life. 
Make sure to visit us at uakron.edu forward slash diverse engineering to follow or to share our podcast. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday and join us next Tuesday for our final podcast episode for season three as we speak with Dr. Ruel McKenzie. Keep rising. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Diverse Engineering. I want to thank GPD Group and Continental Contatech for their generous support of this podcast series. If you'd like to help ease the financial burden of our diverse graduate students in the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, please consider a donation. We need your help as community sponsors and listeners to support these students in any way you can. To donate, text WIE to 71777 or give online at uacron.edu slash giving slash WIE. Thank you to podcast host Ebony Bond, podcast editor Daniel Groen, WZIP general manager Chris Kepler, podcast creator Heidi Cressman, and the College of Engineering and Polymer Science for making this podcast a reality. This has been Gary Miller, president of the University of Akron. Go Zips!